My whole life is a dark room. One big dark room. Hello and welcome to 80s Movie Montage, where I would say the last seven months have been one big dark room. I'm Derek. <laughs> and I'm Anna. And today we're here to talk to you about... Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Don't say it. Oh, you said it three times. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited about this one. This one is really fun. We had, as always, a amazing guest uh, who came on the show to chat about it because it's one of her favorites. And it's another one of our Halloween movies. So love this season. Fun movie. It's just like Two the last one up. we covered, right? <laughs> I mean, it's a it's the perfect follow up. Yeah, it's really a like spiritual sequel to, to uh, the, Shining. the Shining. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, if you're going by the intros alone, you might actually think that they because opened up they're in a very really similar. similar. Yeah. yeah, where you're just like following a road. So. All right, so as always, lots to talk about, so let's just jump in, shall we? Let's do it. Okay, so Beetlejuice, 1988, mm -hmm. so we're coming in a little bit later, and at this point, well, I'm getting too far ahead of myself, because I'm like thinking about uh, Michael Keaton's career at this point. There's a lot to think about. There's a lot to think about, um, but let's let's rewind just a touch, let's and we'll start with the writers. So we have a couple people credited for this movie, and one individual, he has, like, kind of dual credits. Ooh. So he came in at, like, the story phase, so he has credits for story and screenplay. Um, but let's start with the gentleman. It seems like that middle guy, his name is Michael McDowell, he worked with, like, the other two dudes who have writing credits on this movie. So... The first dude is the first dude. the first dude is Larry Wilson. So he's the other one that has like just a story credit. Okay. And I mean, in looking through his IMDb, like he definitely has a niche that he writes for. Um, some of his other credits, The Adams Family. The first one? Yeah. Okay. Mm hmm Tales from the Crypt. Got it. The Little Family. I don't I'm not like super familiar with that the but little family the little family mm. the year without a santa claus i remember hearing that coming out yeah and then you know like this is something we can we can talk about this if you want to but it's been it's been talked about for a while this like beetlejuice 2 that you <laughs> I, know, I must have missed that oh i think it's like I, I just feel like it's one of those things that's like always discussed when a movie does really well yeah and so Per IMDb, there's like an announced Beetlejuice 2, but who knows if it's When was like... that announced? It's just, it has been announced. It has been announced. Okay. Yeah, but It's who... like they've declared bankruptcy. Right. Like, who knows, like, how far it's going to actually go. But then moving on to Michael McDowell. So he's the guy with the dual credits. Again, a gentleman who has kind of like a niche that he plays up for. So he didn't work... Well, actually, I think he did do, like, one, maybe one episode of Tales from the Crypt, but he was working on Tales from the Dark Side. So okay. So different kind of tales. Yeah. I, was that a a movie or just one of the episodes? Okay, it looks like no, it was for an it episode. A, it was, like, a show. Yeah, it yeah. was, like, the a different version of The Twilight Zone, and the intro I always thought was really kind of, like, creepy when I was a kid, but I've since rewatched like, the opening on YouTube and thought... That's pretty corny. Oh. But terror, it kind of scared me. kind of freaked me out as a kid. Well, that's uh, interesting because, like, we talk about how Beetlejuice itself was kind of scary for yeah. kids. But then you come to appreciate it a little bit more as an adult and you see kind of 
part of what? it is like I've just seen way worse at this point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Um. So among McDowell's other credits, besides Tales from the Dark Side, we have Monsters. We have The Nightmare Before Christmas. I've heard of it. Uh huh. Yeah. Thinner. I've heard of. It. So that is one where I've like I've heard of it. Yeah. I've I've read it. I've seen. I, th- I think I have seen it. It's um. Yeah. It's a it's a curse Stephen King curse kind of movie. Got it. Yeah, and then he's also listed under the Beetlejuice two announcement, and I think primarily it's because since those guys both have like story by credits, they're just inherently attached to anything that moves forward because of like the characters and that sort of thing. I mean, I'm just excited that we get to announce this announcement in our podcast. So for anyone who wasn't aware of this yeah. announcement, it has <laughs> I mean, been a, it has been announced. I guess I'm kind of like downplaying this announcement. I'm just very. Um, I choose to believe it's wary that it's actually going to move forward, but we'll see. Who knows? We'll see. Um, and then lastly, we have a gentleman, and we've talked about him before by the name of Warren Scarin. And if you want to learn more about Warren, uh huh, you should go back to episode fourteen because he also was a screenwriter on Batman. I never realized how much his name sounds like Michael Scarn from Threat Level Midnight. Oh boy. I mean, Who else we got? To, you need to give people a little bit of context because not I, everybody is I as refuse deep of to. A... If if people need more context for Michael Scarn and Threat Level Midnight, I'm sorry. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> moving on uh, to the director, Mr. Tim Burton. Oh yeah, and we've, we've also talked about yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. It's actually kind of funny. Like this isn't our first Tim Burton film that we've talked about, and because we have gone through his really impressive and very unique. Um, career again if you want to learn more about him go to our episode 14 because he's also the director of batman and that's exactly where you can hear about all his other amazing credits he's given us so much i am not even mad that he ruined uh, willy wonka for me yeah um yeah i have strong feelings about that movie too Mm. and it's really not something that i need to i mean it kind of like it's probably like confirmation bias but it's kind of one of those things where it's like, okay, you tried to redo this movie and it wasn't great. Would so, you say uh, it was worse than Poltergeist? Well, I wouldn't know because I, <laughs> I mean, unless I'm like, you're keeping something from me, we haven't actually seen the reboot of Poltergeist. We just know that it's bad. I've seen portions of it. Portions of it. Yeah. I think I saw maybe one scene of it, but I'm not going to watch it. I, yeah. I have seen the Johnny Depp version, the Tim Burton version of... Yeah, it's not good. Okay, so moving on. Beetlejuice. Um, and actually what's kind of interesting about this particular episode is more so than any of our previous episodes, we have a lot of like recurring individuals that we've we've talked about before. It was so, bound to happen. Yeah, it's We're bound to happen. We're starting to get there. And maybe by the time we get into like a season two or something like that, I'll like revisit these people. But we've talked about them so recently. Um, yeah. And I did feel like we needed to call out the casting again. Because, I mean, we talk about this with our guest, how iconic Michael Keaton is in this role. And I think everybody else, all the supporting characters, Winona Ryder in particular, they are perfect in their roles. And that is due in large part because of two women by the name of Janet Hershenson Mm -hmm. and Jane Jenkins. All right. Who we've already talked about. What? What? Very recently, even more recently than Batman, because they did the casting for Ferris Bueller. Got it. So if you want to know more about uh, Janet and Jane, 
please go to episode 16 where we do a deep dive into their careers, which are super impressive. Janet. Okay. So, Janet, did you just call her Janet? Let's move on. Okay. <laughs> to finally someone we can talk about who's new. Woohoo. All right. Um, cinematography. So, this movie was shot by a gentleman uh, by the name of Thomas E. Ackerman. And he had a great long career. Um, some of his other credits, I love this film. We will eventually be covering this film. Girls just want to have fun. <laughs> it will happen. I know that you love that film a lot. Yeah. And I know that we will cover it. Yes. Yeah. Dance TV. Yep. yep. Um, so we will be covering that. He shot that. A movie that I'm pretty sure this is one of your faves, Back to School. And we'll be covering uh, that as well. Oh, I thought it was. I We are going to cover it. I don't necessarily want to characterize it as one of my faves. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Sorry because, to put words in your mouth. Well, look. In particular, any Rodney Dangerfield movie... I, I know right off the top of my head, wow, this is not going to have aged well. Right. There's going to be a lot of shit that I see where I'm like, oh, no. So while I will admit that I really enjoyed this movie when it first came out and we will be covering it, I just don't want to say it's my favorite. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm, I'm terrified. I'm terrified of saying it's my favorite. I will say that it has a great scene with Oingo Boingo. Oh, yeah, which is actually very relatable to what we're talking about as yep. we'll we'll get to that in just a moment um so a couple of his other credits moonwalker hmm thought that was just interesting yeah no um, I, I he's mostly like a comedic uh cinema like he seems to lean towards comedies so i thought that was a little bit of a, like out of genre type of yeah no i yeah. thought you said i thought of moon raker the james bond movie at first oh. but it's moon walker which was uh what the michael jackson thing you know what? Yeah, I totally yeah. is that it's what a, it is? Yeah, it's I the Michael thinking, Jackson thing where he turns into like a so, Michael Jackson okay, transformer. That is so funny because that's actually what I was thinking in my head too. I was thinking Moonraker. So, yeah. but I wrote it correctly. So yeah. it is Moonwalker. <laughs> so even though I was thinking differently. Okay, moving on. Uh National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Yeah, which, which is great. At some point will come up. Uh Dennis the Menace, Baby's Day Out. So you can kind of get a sense of like where this guy's sensibility is. Mm. Jumanji, the first one. Okay. And George of the Jungle are some of his credits. Yipes. Yeah. Oh. Uh, I mean, great. <laughs> okay. So I thought for the purposes of this film, we should bring up costume design because come on. Like very iconic costuming in this film i mean even outside of beetlejuice himself so all right so costume design was by a person i i greatly apologize if i am mispronouncing the name aggie gerard rogers i'm gonna give her an alternate pronunciation of gerard rogers oh do you think that's what it is i, I don't know i just wanted to make it sound that more, sounds way uh, better it just sounded this sounds way better okay. yeah so aggie rogers Sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So among some of her other credits, we have, and and I picked ones that I think also kind of play into how the look of a character via their costuming informs the story. Okay. And so um, some of those credits include American Graffiti, mm -hmm. The Conversation. I, I will always bring up The Conversation because I feel like it's a really underrated Coppola film and it's really, really good. Mm -hmm. uh, so... I thought this was really interesting because it's like, how does this happen? So there's an uncredited credit 
for one flew over the cuckoo's nest and i'm like okay i could understand that for maybe like screenwriting or i don't know there's like other disciplines that i could get that for but i'm like how do you get an uncredited credit for costume design that is interesting yeah i'm very curious about how that came out uh return of the jedi so she's the one responsible for luke wearing all black or for the princess leia Oh, yeah, that was in that movie, too. There you go, yeah. <laughs> um, but I love you that that's not where your head first went. You're, Wasn't it? You're a good, good man, Derek. Danky. All right. <laughs> so moving on. Cocoon. Uh, here she we made go. everyone look old. <laughs> and then young. <laughs> and then uh, another Burton film, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Yeah, which is, I mean, Tim Burton movies have that Tim Burton look, but mm-hmm. Pee-wee's Big Adventure? Mm-hmm and uh beetlejuice are like they're both kind of similar in some of the gags they pull and some of like the sure, I could see the that. weird like mm-hmm. like some of the like jump scares are like pulling their faces or doing like crazy things to scare the the humans in their house in beetlejuice reminded me of some of the stuff you see with large marge in uh, peewee's big adventure where she's like a, a ghost okay yeah. yeah i could t- i totally agree with you i could Absolutely see that similarity. Um, and then just wrapping up some of those other credits, The Color Purple, mm-hmm. The Witches of Eastwick, The Fugitive, great movie, not an 80s, bummer that we She's can't like, cover it. no, not that arm, the other arm. <laughs> and Rent. So I think you forgot one. What, well, What do you mean I forgot one? Costume I mean, I had... and wardrobe for Willow. Oh, yeah, that's another really good that's one. That's a good one. That's a good one. Okay, thank you for that. Sorry. No, sorry. I appreciate that. I mean, like, extensive career. So it's like you got to pick and choose. Yeah. You know. Okay. So moving on to the person who cut the film, the editor, woman by the name of Jane Curson. So go women editors. Um, some of her credits, and a lot of them do kind of, ha- like, again, there's, like, kind of a certain niche, I would say, that they cater towards. Um, the Karate Kid Part 2. Not the it original. wasn't awful. I know you have more love for that movie than I do. Yeah, but... it, it had some uh, fun moments. I love at the end when his uh, his new strategy is so his prior strategy was the uh, crane kick, mm-hmm, indefensible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You cannot defense that. You kick. cannot defense is that you cannot defense that kick. Okay. <laughs> um, but then for two, it was just to swing your arm arms wildly like a madman and hit anything in your way. That was the uh, strategy, and it worked, of course. I mean, I guess if it works. It worked. It worked. Yeah. Okay. Hot Shots, Bad Girls, okay. and Bed of Roses huh. are among some of her other credits. All right. All right. So getting to – so this is going to be kind of like a – because I'm, <laughs> <laughs> because I'm going next to music, which is Danny Elfman, and he's amazing, and I think the general consensus is that we all love him, Yeah, but we've already talked about him. Also featured in Back to School. Right. And so, yes, we not only have we talked about him in this very episode. We're talking episode. About, about things he's not even going to be covered by yet, but we will. He, We feature him prominently in Batman because yeah. he is the gentleman behind that um, score as well. And so, again... If you want to learn more about Mr. Elfman, please go to episode 14, where we do a deep dive into his career for Batman. All right. Well, that actually takes us in pretty quick order to the people in the film. So, and I promise this will be, wait, 
let me make sure I could like make good on that. No, I can't totally make good on that. Pro- oh, I can't make good on that promise at all. Okay, well, we may edit some. Um, <laughs> so I was about to say like we won't keep directing you to other episodes, but we actually have several people that we've already covered in okay. other episodes, namely Michael Keaton. Oh yeah, he he was in like another. I feel like it was another Tim Burton movie. Maybe. <laughs> what was the timeline of those? Uh, Batman was the next year. Okay. Yeah. So Beetlejuice was 88. Batman was 89. Can you imagine if Bruce Wayne was more like Beetlejuice? Oh, gosh. That would be terrible. And he just like leaps um, out of the Batcave and says, showtime. Well, you know, because we've had so many Batmans um, at this point. I'm trying to think. They they all kind of stay away from like the goofier side of it. But I guess if I had to pick one that maybe if there could be any kind of a tenuous connection to Beetlejuice, I would say maybe the George Clooney one. Mm, I don't know. Maybe. But I'm like really grasping at straws. So I'm like. I'm just saying I wish that Michael Keaton played Bruce Wayne as Beetlejuice in the role of Batman. But do you really? Kind of. Mm, all right. Agree to disagree. <laughs> um, but the reason why. So the reason why I brought him up at the top of the episode where I was like, oh, I'm thinking about keaton's career is because we we do talk about this in batman and how there was a lot of pushback uh, against the casting of him because of namely this movie you know and people were like how how is somebody who played beetlejuice going to play batman uh i have a one word act answer and it is acting <laughs> which you know it just shows you how great he is you know like that's that's called range, folks. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> He's Michael Keaton. He's not Tom Cruise. He can act like different people. Did, you know, it's something I didn't actually bring up, and then we'll move on. Um, did you know that, do you, do you know what, like, his real name is? It's just Mike. Mikey? No, but do you know, like, Michael Keaton is his stage name, and do you I, know why? No. You're, this is going to blow your mind, maybe. His real name is Michael Douglas. <laughs> You didn't know that. No, that's amazing. His real name is Michael Douglas. I love that so much. Where did and, Keaton come from? Uh, oh, man. You know what? I read that story somewhere. To to my knowledge of it, it wasn't something that he like pondered over greatly. He just kind of picked it. Um, I want to say maybe he even picked it out of the yellow pages, now that I'm thinking about where I read that story. But in any case, I'm hoping... For the audience, like for obvious reasons, he had to change it because there already was a Michael Douglas that was doing quite well and had like that. Romancing the stone. Yeah. Well, I I, mean, that was he. I mean, Mr. Mom was like, what, 82? I think so. Yeah. And so, I mean, that precedes Romancing the Stone. But like he already was aware that there was this other guy called Michael Douglas. And I think maybe part of it, part of it was that, you know, he come came from like an acting family, the Douglas Douglas acting family. So it's like, okay, well, I'm going to have to be the one that changed my name. One of us has to change. Yeah. It's not going to be him. I think it works, though. I think Michael Keaton suits him. Mm-hmm. Okay. Moving on to Alec Baldwin, another gentleman from an acting family. So he plays Adam, one of the two, like the husband in the deceased couple uh, in Beetlejuice. And among some of his credits, so, I mean, this is a dude who, like, probably, literally, I didn't catch last night's uh snl but i'm pretty confident that he was on it because he's been playing the president and that's all i'll say about that um for the last several years but i mean he's had a long career uh one of his earliest uh gigs which i always think this is funny is he was on knots landing i always love when people are on like kind of those like 
melodrama type shows. Um, and then I kind of remember him like late 80s. You know, he had bit parts in Married to the Mob and Working Girl. Yeah. Um, and then I think probably one of the... I, Hmm. I'm going to I don't know if it's really going out on a ledge to say this, but one of his defining roles, I think, was in Glengarry Glen Ross. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 So in a very different kind of role. Um, and he you know, I'm, I'm kind of jumping uh, probably more than a decade. And he had been working that whole time, but then just some of the other roles that like I'm more familiar with him with is the the Aviator. He's in that. Mm-hmm. Um, the Departed. He's been in so right. much. Yeah, it's he's insane. been in so much. And then probably what most people probably define him or, or connect him with is Thirty Rock. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it wasn't too long. It was only a few years after Glenn Glary, uh, Glenn Ross. But he was also in The Shadow, which I think is kind of an underrated, uh, okay, kind of a cheesy, yeah. underrated comic bookish movie, sure. possibly. But I thought that was a, a kind of a cool movie. Cool. Also, and- oh, it's in the nineties. Dang. Yeah. So close. Oh, oh, dang. Dang indeed. <laughs> and then he had like bit part. I think it's funny because like, again, a guy with range, he had a bit part in Rock of Ages. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Tom Cruise. And then also Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Oh, yeah. He plays yeah. kind of like a, I don't know, kind of a significant role in, mm-hmm. in those. And I yeah, think he's he sure moving does. forward. Yeah. With, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Moving on to Gina Davis, who plays Barbara. Uh, so she is the wife mm-hmm. in this deceased couple in Beetlejuice. I love this actress. Yeah, I just, she's great. I really, I really do. I love her. Her very first film role, Tootsie. That's right. That was her first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yep. yep. Um, and then again, she's she's had a great career. She was in The Fly, Earth Girls Are Easy. She got an Oscar for The Accidental Tourist. I think it's interesting that you bring up The Fly because there is a moment in Beetlejuice when yeah. when he lures a fly over to him to to eat it, and you can hear the fly going "Help me," which is from the original Fly. I don't think it happened in the version that she was in with. Um, Jeff Goldblum with, with Goldblum, yeah. yeah. But in the original, that was one of the almost like comic scenes, unintentionally comic scenes. I feel like I read that was that was intentionally put in by Burton as like an homage. Yeah, no, I would yeah. not be surprised. Yeah. Um. So Oscar winner, and then she had a couple years where I mean, just amazing work that she was putting out and this is like post her winning the oscar so absolutely adore her and thelma and louise Mm -hmm. so great um i'm pretty sure if i remembering correctly both her and susan sarandon were up for the oscar for that and i have a feeling they canceled each other out because they that happens a lot um probably my all-time favorite role of hers a league of their own yeah daddy she's I wish that was an 80s movie. Um, so, and then she is in one of the more infamous films, Cutthroat Island. Yeah. And it's like right up there with Waterworld. Yeah. Followed up pretty quickly, though, by The Long Kiss Goodnight with Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, that was, which was really good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, I mean, she she continues to work, but also she's ventured out. Like, there's the Gina, Gina Davis Institute, which tackles kind of the um, presence of female-identifying characters in film. And um, she's behind the um, Bentonville Film Festival. And so she's, like, really branched out, but she still works. I mean, she um, 
And she's done a lot of TV lately, too. She's like, even she... done some animation with uh, DreamWorks, She-Ra, and the Princesses of Power. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, I know her most recently from Glow, yeah. which wah, wah, was canceled. Thanks, Very, Netflix. Yeah, thanks, Netflix. What else is uh, really good and at a third season so we can just watch it vaporize? Exactly. So she'll be okay. I don't know if we will. But okay, moving <laughs> on to Jeffrey Jones, who plays Charles mm. in this film. So I'm going to just immediately direct you to episode 16, which is Ferris Bueller. He obviously plays Edward Rooney mm-hmm. in that film. I and thought he was the same character in this, actually. I thought he just had gotten it was post Ferris Bueller breakdown, mental breakdown. And he had to move to the country to relax. Now, that really is a spiritual successor, if yeah. you look at it that way. I think he's wearing, like, the same clothes, kind of. Like, he's a... That, he, if you... Like, that actually makes sense. Because you're right. Like, he keeps saying, I need to relax. I need to relax. Mm-hmm. And that that's an interesting take. He said he was from New York, but I think he was really from Chicago. Maybe he mixed mixed those two cities up. Who knows? The shame of what happened in Ferris Bueller <laughs> just led him to yeah. Maybe he's like taking on a new identity and could all could all be true. Who Probably we got not, next? But who do we got next? <laughs> um. So another amazing actress, Catherine O'Hara. Uh, congrats to her because she very recently won the Emmy for Schitt's Creek. Um, that is like the most recent gig that she's had, and she's. She's amazing in that. I love that show so much. Uh, in this movie, she plays Delia. So she plays Charles' new wife and Lydia's stepmother. Mm-hmm. Um, so Catherine O'Hara, she has like a really interesting background because, you know, we've talked about before, like when we did the um, Ghostbusters episode, we talked about the roots of some of those actors and they usually fall into one of two categories where it's either like Second City and then she falls into the other category, which is SCTV. Okay. Um, and so she's been part of that in like different incarnations of it, or she like she was like that's kind of how she came up um, through that entity. And then like she had some like bit parts in the '80s, like she had a part in Heartburn. I think a lot of people know her as the mom in Home Alone. Yeah. So that's like a huge iconic role for her. And then she has. Um, <laughs> and I love these movies so much. So Christopher Guest, uh, have we brought him up in anything yet? I don't think we have. Um, I mean, he is one of the creative geniuses behind This is Spinal Tap, which we will bring up at some point. Oh, yeah. We'll definitely have an episode on that. And then he's gone on to just have this amazing career with all these mockumentaries. Um that are they're so funny like honestly if you if you're not familiar with his work please check out Christopher Guest and all the different mockumentaries that he's done the reason why I'm bringing up Christopher Guest is because he has a long-standing relationship with Catherine O'Hara and she's been in several of those movies so best in or well rewind so one of the first is Waiting for Guffman Mm -hmm. but best in show that's probably my favorite of his different mockumentaries Um, A Mighty Wind for your consideration. So these are all Christopher Guest films that she's been a part of. And actually, I know I'm veering off a little bit, but Eugene Levy, who plays her husband in Schitt's Creek, is also kind of one of those revolving casts of characters that is like in a lot of those different mockumentaries as well. We have talked about him a little bit. What do we talk about him for? Princess Bride. I knew that there was something that we talked about him with. Yeah. So thank you for. Well, I yeah. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure he was that guy with too many fingers. I just completely blanked. Yeah. Yeah. So. So good job. Thank you for 
Thank you for that, husband. Appreciate you. Um, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> so moving on to Lydia, who is played by Winona Ryder. We go in, I think, pretty pretty at length with our guest about what a great job she does in this film. So I'm going to yeah. kind of leave it to that conversation we have with Connor because also we have talked about her before. Yeah, I like to think that this is the, the spiritual prequel to Heather's. Uh, yeah, Heather's was 89 as well, which is interesting because she looks so much older in Heather's, don't you she think? Really, yeah, she really does. Yeah. I mean, she's literally dressed like she's going to a funeral at, at a few times in this movie. Yeah. But she looks like a kid looks, about to go to a funeral. Yeah, yeah. She looks much younger. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so we did our Heather's episode. That was episode five. So that's much earlier. Um, so I like to call it our most popular episode of all time. <laughs> So if you want to hear more about Ms. Ryder, please go to episode five, which <laughs> is where we do talk about her at length for Heathers. Okay. So just a couple more people that I wanted to bring up. Um, one of them is a gentleman by the name of Glenn Shaddix. I'm so glad you brought him up. Oh. He was great in this tell. movie. Yeah. No, that's literally the only reason why. Because oh, okay. he, Because, like, look, in Beetlejuice, where... You're dealing with Michael Keaton bringing like the most insane energy to a character you could ever imagine. This guy had to kind of like be somewhere in between because mm -hmm. the family, you know, like especially the dad is just like, mm -hmm. um, and Lydia is very much, mm -hmm. but this guy, you know, he, he was great. He held his own for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's a bummer because he's actually, he's no longer with us. Um, he left us too early there. He, he like fell in his home and hit his head and mm. passed. So really bummed to have found that out in researching him. Um, but he, he did a lot of great work while he was with us. One thing I didn't realize until after like, and, and it didn't come up in Heather's is that he has that really bit part during the like i don't know what you would call it. it's not like really a hallucination of hers but when she's like at some of these different funerals and he is like the the preacher he's father okay. ripper oh. is how he's labeled on okay. imdb do you know what i'm talking about no <laughs> um i think he's like part of the actual funerals but then she has like these uh moments where she's like talking yeah, to Heather okay, okay. and he's like a little bit more grandiose and that's yeah. like kind of the moments that I remember him from in that movie he also another Burton film is the voice of the mayor in the nightmare before Christmas yeah I love that character which works yeah really well um he also was in Planet of the Apes Carnival and Teen Titans for some of his later credits okay yeah so lastly, because I just love this character so much. So I want to bring up Sylvia Sidney, who plays Juno. And she is basically the case yeah, the caseworker yeah. for Adam and Barbara. So this woman, what a career. Uh, she, she, she's no longer with us. Uh, she has, has, I should say, present tense, 111 IMDb acting credits. Her first role was in a film called Broadway Nights. In 1927. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That's incredible. And, you know, by virtue of the number of credits she had, she was in a ton of stuff. I got to say, a lot of it didn't uh, ring a bell for me. And that doesn't mean anything. Obviously, I don't have exhaustive knowledge. Um, 
but some of the ones that I, you know, was like, okay, yeah, I know those. Um, so she was on that TV series, The Doctors. That's like before our time, but I've heard of it enough. Okay. Um, and then she was in Damien Omen Two. Mm. She was in Mars Attacks. Yeah. That's another she, her, yeah, I feel like her character in Mars Attacks was. Like, I, I definitely recognize her from Mars Attacks and Beetlejuice. I don't think she was the exact same character, but she's pretty sure. identifiable. Yeah, yeah. She's a really distinct voice. Yes. Yeah. And then she was in, I know they're coming out with, like, a new version of it, but she was in a version of Fantasy Island. Oh, okay. Um, But I don't think it was, like, the 80s one. I, if I'm remembering, like, when I was, like, writing it down, and there's, like, a 90s one. Yeah, there's, like, the different TV series, and then there was uh, the movie, which was, like, a horror movie, I think. Oh, is that the what, so what's coming yeah. out? Oh, okay, got you, got yeah. you. Okay, cool. So that is Sylvia Sydney, just a, a small, small fraction of what she worked in. I mean, but... she was in an episode of Starsky and Hutch too. There you go. Yeah, can't, can't I mean, she was short. in a ton of stuff. She had a ton of like guest roles in yeah. television. Um, so awesome. All right, Mister, you know what's up next? I don't. What's up? Well, you should at this point. I know. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Film synopsis. Oh, yeah. Okay. So here we we go. Okay. The spirits of a deceased couple are harassed by an unbearable family that has moved into their home and hire a malicious spirit to drive them out. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much it. Yeah. I think that works. I think that pretty... It's such a bizarre movie. You could give me any one of the like little side stories in there, and I'd be like, yeah, it's, that's true. But this is ultimately what's going on. I feel like the person who wrote this did a really good job of, like you said, taking a really bizarre movie and kind of condensing it down to its primary elements. So If they yeah. had said a pushy real estate agent is finally able to successfully sell her family's home after they perish in an unfortunate driving accident, I'd say, yeah, that's the movie too. <laughs> So, okay, a couple last points before we dive into our conversation with Connor. Um, We talk, okay, so we already talk about with her kind of, you know, maybe our first impressions of this film, like kind of first instances of watching it. Yeah. But I'm curious to know, you know, when we watched it just the other night, did you have any new takeaways from it? Well, I mean... We talk about a couple of the things like with the real estate agent and why was that character right. necessarily even there. You you just, the more you see a movie, the more you kind of see things where like, why did that even happen? Like mm-hmm. it was very uh, fortunate for them that they just happened to have a giant brick wall to draw a door right. for, right. you know, I don't really know why this lady was so pushy to sell the house. They could have just moved beyond that and they would have, you know, died in a car crash and we all would have just moved on with it. Um, I, I remember being, I think, a little bit more shocked by some of the, like, the the gags. And, mm-hmm. like, again, this is like a family comedy slash horror movie where one of the gags is, like, her dead in a noose in a closet. And, right. like, you know, yeah. severed head and all these, like, gruesome things they're doing to scare them. So I don't know if that would, like... Like now, I, I kind of laugh at it more now because it's funny to me that that would have been considered like, uh, it's just good wholesome family. family. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I, I still enjoyed it. It's, uh, it's just, it's a really bizarre movie, but it's a fun ride. Yeah, and it, I mean, it has great pacing. It's really not a very long movie. No, I was surprised. That's that's one of the things that really surprised me was that it, it's 
not that long. As I think it usually should be. That's one thing that I is just like a little pet peeve of mine, like bloated movies. Like yeah. you could pretty often tell a story in 90 minutes. Like you don't need like two and a half hours for a lot of things. Keeping in mind that we need at least two hours to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fair point. Fair point. Um, but yes, you? I, well, um, I, I mean, going off of what you were saying with like the whole kind of like it being family fair, I think even though this comes in at like the tail end of the 80s, it is very much in line with what we've talked about before with things from the 80s definitely being a little bit darker than yeah. what would be considered like family appropriate nowadays. Well, by comparison, I mean, we were talking about seeing like The Shining when we were younger right. or The Exorcism or, or like actual straight up horror movies. So by comparison- The Exorcist. Yeah, what did I call it? The exorcism? Me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, because you're thinking of the exorcism in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but by comparison, this is pretty fun. Like, oh, and it's not super scary. fun. But you're right. Like, we see multiple instances because not only do we see her hanging in the closet, but when they are like trying to talk to their caseworker, yeah. you see a guy in the background who's also hanging from a noose. Yeah. Well, they're, they're like half of them are suicides. Right. And, exactly. Like, these yeah. Yeah. Deaths. And like the woman at the like front desk, like she shows her slit wrist. Yeah. And so there's, there's kind of a lot of that. I mean, the, one interesting thing they drowned, right? Yeah. And I guess. That was something that did come up. They did right. comment on mm -hmm. whether or not they should like appear as though they died from a drowning. And I think Burton or somebody mm -hmm. else involved, like we just can't. We can't. You can't have your. We can't have them like wet, wet the entire time. Yeah. Like that would be miserable. Yeah, yeah. And I, it would be miserable for them, but I think also problematic from a lot of other production aspects. Yeah, I mean, you could maybe kind of give them like wetted down hair some do with a spray bottle is just yeah gonna... <laughs> yeah so like maybe nowadays there'd be a way to do it that'd be more comfortable for them i don't know yeah. but i mean it's fine it does not bother me in the least that no. they are not consistent with that with like basically the two main characters everybody else it's very yeah. like obvious why they yeah. and how they died yeah exactly so lastly uh i think we're two for two there's Good. no montage. <laughs> no, there's no montage. There's no montage. Yeah. So, I mean, there's not really uh, anything for us to talk about on that end. Moving on. Moving on. So, very excited. Let's jump into our conversation with Connor. Yes, let's do it. And we are thrilled to have with us today great friend and amazing composer, Connor Cook. Welcome to the show, Hello. Connor. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is such a treat. Yay, it is a treat for us. And that segues perfectly to Trick or Treat, <laughs> a.k.a. Halloween, a.k.a. Beetlejuice. I don't think I'm using a.k.a. right, but you get you get it. It, it works. Yeah. Works yeah. for me. <laughs> um, no, we're, we're super excited. I mean, this is one of our favorite times of year, and... We are in the middle of our mini Halloween series, I guess you would say. Yeah, and I think this movie is is in so many ways similar to the first movie we covered for Halloween, <laughs> The Shining. You know, like similar mood, you similar know, tone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this may have been a prequel, and that house may have turned into the Overlook. I don't know. It's interesting, or I guess it's not a conspiracy theory. What Isn't would it, it? be? Okay. Well, in any case, in any case, we're very excited to have you on the show. And I think that there is a lot to talk about with this film. So 
How do you feel about uh, us just jumping right in? Here for it. Love it. Okay. Perfect. Well, as I do, my first question that kind of kicks things off usually begins with, do you remember the first time you saw this movie and about maybe how old were you and what were your first thoughts of Beetlejuice? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually was terrified of this movie because I saw it when I was (laughs) probably – I was very young, elementary school, and I thought it was really scary. I thought Beetlejuice himself was very scary. And now I find it whimsical, but I do very distinctly remember the first time I saw it on television and I was watching it. I think it was on Disney Channel or one of those classic stations or ABC Family. I don't know. One of those. And I was completely terrified of the sand snakes. I was really scared of all the practical effects because they're kind of very tactile looking. And I thought Beetlejuice was scary. They're horrific. And they're, yeah. Yeah. So I definitely remember my first time watching this. And I have to be honest, I did not like it because it made me so scared. But I was very young and I gave it many, many, many other chances after that because they had that animated series based on it, which I became obsessed with. Okay. Okay. That, okay. That's the connection. Cause I was like, um, interesting because the movie, the movie itself feels like a cartoon come to life in mm -hmm. with like some of the slapstick comedy and like kind of insane over the top violence (laughs) that it has. Um, So yeah, it translates very well to a, to a cartoon. Yes. So the first time you watched this, were you watching it alone or did you have any family with you? I was watching it by myself, which maybe added to the fear factor. Hmm. And did your parents know you were watching this movie? <laughs> I don't think they did. I think they would have let me um, okay. probably, uh, but I don't think they knew because it was maybe a Saturday or something and I was home watching it and everyone else was doing their own things. And uh, I definitely was... I remember being really scared of the sandworms in particular, the stop motion sandworms. Um, I've always loved stop motion. It's one of my greatest loves in life. But it was really scary as a kid because I really thought of them as real. I've always been able to – well, not been able to. I've always been really drawn into film. So for me as a kid, this was real. And it was all like this scary trickster trying to you know, be a naughty boy. You must be very excited for the upcoming Dune movie. I really am. I really, there, really there's am. a pretty big sandworm snake thing in that movie. I can't really wait. Love sandworms. Yeah, they do. I didn't realize there were so many they're, movies with sandworms. They're uh, like they look kind of cartoonish, and the stop motion isn't like peak stop motion animation. But in particular, the scene when Gina Davis comes like crashing through mm-hmm. the roof of the house riding one of them. Yes. Spoiler. Fierce. Sorry. It, it was. <laughs> it, it was, but I also I'm like, oh, okay. Well that was kind of that was kind of wacky. Yeah. I mean the, Yes. You raise a lot of interesting points because um when we were watching so we always watch it almost always the night before we speak to our our special guest about the movie and so when we were watching it last night a couple things came up one when you were saying that you were frightened of it I so I don't have any memory of being scared of this movie which probably indicates like I saw it for the first time as an older person Um, I don't remember seeing it as a kid, but it seems like Derek also did because you also mentioned that there was a scene that you remember being really scared by. 
Yeah, and I did see it in the theater. I do remember going to see okay. it, I think, with my dad uh, the first time. And I can now no longer remember the scene that was really scary, <laughs> even though I just watched it last night. Yeah. You know, it changes as a kid. Now I look at it and to me, it's full of whimsy and Mm -hmm. it's delightful and it's hilarious. And it's maybe there's a spooky undertone, but it's definitely not scary to me now. But I can see why as a kid I was so scared because really the stop motion is kind of uncanny. It's a little disjointed Mm -hmm. and the practicals are really weird. They're you know, the faces when they pull their faces are kind of right. scary. When he becomes the snake, that's very scary looking to a child. I could see why I was scared. <laughs> no, that all really great points. And what's interesting is like the other thing that Derek and I were talking about with these effects last night is and and this is gonna sound a little snarky. Oh. I, I try not to be snarky about things, but I was like, oh, it doesn't <laughs> feel like these really have like held up. But I have to what is the what is that phrase? Eat humble pie? Because I was <laughs> kind of after the fact doing research on it. And I guess a lot of the way that the effects were portrayed was, was very intentional. Like the the kind of tackiness and kind of B-movie quality of them mm-hmm. was intentional by Burton. And I don't know if you you had kind of already mm-hmm. researched this on your own, uh, Connor, because he had a very small budget to work with. I and did read that. Yeah. Yeah. So apparently he was like, okay, great. Well, like if I have no money to do this, I'm just going to really double down. And Love it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, that's great. I think that that's um, it. It ultimately, even though I was like, oh, these haven't held up it to everything that you were saying, it adds to kind of the charm and the really unique atmosphere of this world in this movie. Mm-hmm. So it does work. And and I think it like I can totally see why kid because a lot of the effects are very um, that's where I'm like, like not abrupt, but like. I, I probably very intentionally like they just pop out at you. Yeah, so, like, like you're jump scares. It's yeah, like exactly. Of, you're caught off guard. It's like walking through a, a haunted maze where mm-hmm. someone yeah. just jumps out, and maybe they're not that scary, but under the context and the circumstances, it just makes you kind of like get that that startle or mm-hmm, jump. Mm-hmm. That yeah. is a great analogy, and actually something I was thinking about when I was rewatching this. Um, it reminds me of actual Halloween when people are wearing kind of poorly made costumes yeah. and it's really crazy. You know, it's all fun and there's just something to me it's so charming to rewatch it and see the kind of bad special effects because Tim Burton is such a master of putting you into a world and the world is usually one you've never seen before and not one that exists in the real world which this film definitely is that. The house itself yeah. is spooky and beautiful and kind of looks like it's made out of cardboard. <laughs> but yes. somehow it really works in the context. Except for uh, that one brick wall in the in the attic that they use for the door. <laughs> very, right. very convenient and lucky that they should have a brick wall. Yeah, too. in a whole that side, right? wood house. <laughs> yeah. That was maybe Weird. the fire, but I don't know what that was. No, I think it really was just like a strip okay. of... Br- I don't know. Um, <laughs> accent but, wall exactly there you go um so you had mentioned that what kind of brought you back to this movie that initially had been pretty scary for you was mm-hmm. the cartoon yes so so at what point i mean not like you have to like it was 
April 15th, you know, 1990, whatever, you know, but, but like, what made you decide to give it a try? Were you like much older and you're like, oh, I was probably just a kid and, 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 you know, that's why it was scary to me. Like what brought you back to the movie to the point where now it's like a beloved movie? That's a great question. Um, I definitely think it was a combination of my fascination and sort of obsession with animation um, because Mm -hmm. I watched the animated series and I also watched Nightmare Before Christmas before I revisited Beetlejuice. Mm. So I I sort of developed this, I guess it was a fascination with sort of the darker side, not darker, but yeah, subtly darker animations, Um, particularly the television show, the Beetlejuice TV show where Beetlejuice is Sort of more lighthearted, mischievous boy, kind of poltergeisty, mm-hmm. um, rather than a an actually scary bad guy. And then Nightmare Before Christmas sort of made me want to get back to Beetlejuice because I remember it having the stop motion, mm. more rudimentary sort of feeling stop motion. But definitely animation brought me back to this film because I, I just wanted to rewatch it with sort of a new take on tim burton really mm-hmm. i remember and i might remember this incorrectly but i feel like the animated version was more focused on lydia even and she's obviously like a, a pretty big focal point of the movie because of her ability to see uh the ghosts but i also remember that beetlejuice that character was not quite as uh I will just say inappropriate, perhaps, towards other characters yeah. as he was in the I movie. Mean, where as saw- as we bring up yeah. with many of the '80s movies, there are problematic <laughs> moments. There were moments where I'm like, "Holy or, shit, you can't do that, man!" Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, there's, oh, yes. there's like rapey behavior, definitely. Um, and yeah, just putting that out there. But um, c- continue. Sorry. <laughs> oh no, I completely agree. I think. Yeah, Lydia balances him out in a certain way because he is Very crass so. and mm-hmm, disgusting. Mm-hmm. Not just physically, his personality, all of every sort of gimmick he does is pretty gross. I mean, it's not he is yeah. not charming, but the yeah, the oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Actually, you go. Well, I was gonna say I I mean I agree with with everything that you're saying, and the one. Well, two two things uh, that really stood out for me. For okay, so okay, let's. Sorry, I'm going to backtrack just a second. Okay. To say, <laughs> I think Michael Keaton did an amazing job in this film. Yes. Yeah. Iconic. I, Completely iconic. Iconic. Yeah, I think that that like if ever there was like a appropriate like moment to use the word iconic, it is for this this role in this film. Yes. Um. So love him in this movie. I do think that it's also great that he is in so little of it because I do think that there would come a point of diminishing returns. (laughs) I Um, couldn't agree more. Okay. I, 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 cause like I read and like, look, I did not do a count for myself, but I'll, I'll take whoever put this up on IMDb at their word that he's in less than like 15 minutes of the entire film. I read that too, and that he shot in maybe two weeks or so. And it makes sense because if he were in any more of it, it would be too much because the movie really isn't yes. about him. It's really about mm-hmm. Lydia and the Maitlands and their relationship, yeah. I think. I think it's really actually sort of a sweet family story about Lydia. It's really about her. So if he were in more of it, it would be 
maybe too much because he I think they edited him in just the perfect amount. Totally agree. And what's weird is that kind of (laughs) very different movie, but the same kind of, I think, effect was Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Yeah. Because Anthony Hopkins is also, I think, like pretty much the same amount of time. I think he's in it for like six, like at the time. Me, I don't know if this record has been broken, but um, you know, winning the Oscar for Best Actor for a film in which he's <laughs> in for like 16 minutes yeah. is kind of a remarkable feat. I don't Wild. think anybody's topped that. Yeah. Um, but it's the si- similar kind of sentiment where had he been in it for even a half hour or longer, it kind of um, dilutes the impact of that character in the story. He was also a bio exorcist yeah. in that movie, right? Yes, bioexorcist. <laughs> in a manner of speaking, same he sure thing. Was. Yeah, 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 yeah. Loves um, to prey on the living. <laughs> that's really interesting connection. Yeah, that's um, a great parallel. What I was uh, the two little things about his performance. So you're right. I think like very crass. Lydia is the counterpoint to this character, but I did think it was a really interesting moment when she reveals to him that she wants to die, and yes. he does seem to be genuinely surprised yeah that is very true and it felt and, to me like the one moment where he wasn't like in control of the narrative like he was actually caught off guard by it all mm-hmm. he didn't predict it that's a great exactly because he is so sort of balls to the wall in mm-hmm. your face not quiet but he that is one point in the film where he is sort of quiet yeah so i just i i liked that moment a lot um also one thing that like made me guffaw was uh he has a lot of great throwaway lines like i read that you know the improv most of it yes the overwhelming majority (laughs) of his of his lines were improv and um you know when he does this big spectacle uh for well he does like the carnival yes um, yes strongman thing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yes and then when he comes out of that he's like that's why i can't do two performances in a day not gonna do it or something like that and it's just like (laughs) such a throwaway line but it's so like that's where i think he shines like sometimes yes um and again i'm not this is not to um take away from his from any part of his performance but like sometimes when like you said he's like so balls to the wall like it's it's a lot. It's a lot of stimulation for mm-hmm. the viewer. And so I can appreciate kind of like a little bit of the quieter moments of yeah. his performance um, because it's it's not so overwhelming. Again, it was it, it felt like that <laughs> overwhelming aspect of it for me felt like another parallel between this being like animation or cartoon coming to mm-hmm, life, like mm-hmm. like totally. his animation, Burton's animation, just like going from paper to screen and. Because that's what you would see, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, in older cartoons, there was this like hyper violent slapstick comedy. There were like so many parts of the movie that reminded me of that kind of thing. Yeah, I really think that is I hadn't thought of the analogy of his a lot of his live action films being basically animations, but it makes perfect sense. And I can't think of a film of his where he's not creating this almost cartoonish world because the bright colors i mean this film has the most saturated colors other than maybe edward scissorhands that has a lot of saturated mm-hmm. color great, yeah. well they're pastel but they're green. bright it has right. a lot of green and it has a lot of 
just really saturated color, which to me kind of screams animation. Animation mm-hmm. often has such bright colors and things like that. And set design. This had amazing set design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just the intro going from like that overhead shot of this little town that they live in. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is a, a nice little town. And then that almost imperceptible transition to where you get into the model. I mean, by the time it focuses on the model of the house, you know that you're just looking at a miniature. But yes. Just that transition in the beginning was was really well done. Yeah, so cool. Not sure where I was going with that. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I, it's an excellent point. Um, so, okay, Connor, you've brought up a couple of really good points. So I'm curious, given what you've already said about kind of where maybe your sensibility lies and like what kinds of um, narratives and and visual elements you're attracted to. So do you consider yourself like a Burton fan? Or what was this the film? If you were that brought you into it, or you had mentioned Nightmare Before Christmas, I'm I'm very interested in knowing. I so tell us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll lay it all out. I really adore Tim Burton. I adore maybe like five directors that I just love, and they're all really stylized directors. There's nothing I love more than a director with a point of view. And a style to where you can watch several frames of the film and know who did it. I mean, Mm -hmm. what a quality. So Tim is, I'd say, one of the most iconic directors in that regard. Because you really, all of his films, if you watch a snippet, you know it's him. Almost Mm -hmm. immediately. So strong style in a film is something I'm really drawn to in his films. I'm also really drawn to his whimsy. And something about Tim Burton films to me are just innately nostalgic. I don't know exactly. I can't quite place it, but when I watch his films, they feel nostalgic to me. Um, so I love that about him too. I think Nightmare Before Christmas is probably the film that pulled me into him more than anything else. And it's okay. strictly because it's a stop motion film, which I just stop motion to me is my favorite sort of filmmaking. And I love that he sort of brought it back because it had been sort of absent for a bit in popular cinema. Then it came back pretty big with Nightmare Before Christmas. But I, so I are, really loved him. I do. Side note, are you also a, then a big fan of all those like Christmas specials? Like Rudolph? Oh, and, yes, indeed. Right? They're awesome. Thank you. Okay. They are awesome. <laughs> they are beautiful. And the, actually the beautiful? practical animation on those is really good. It Yes. Yeah. No, I I love them so much. I mean, and I know that you could pick them up pretty easily anywhere, but like my favorite is when you just like happen to catch them on TV. Like I love that. Oh, like, me too. It's, it's such a, a nice moment. surprise. Yes. Love it. Um, okay, sorry. Back to Burton. Back to Beetlejuice. <laughs> no, that's um, great. I I totally agree with your points. And I think that um, because as you were saying, you know, he's one of the few directors where you look at just a couple frames of one of his films and you know, it's his film. Mm -hmm. I was trying to think like, who else can you actually say that about? Um, Yeah, there's a few. Hitchcock. Yeah, Hitchcock for sure. Big time. Yeah, I think what's similar too, because uh, also as you were speaking about that, I was thinking, okay, so when we're talking visuals, you know, how much is of it is the director versus the cinematographer versus, you know, other individuals sure. involved in a particular production. But I do think that th- this is coming from Burton. He 
finds people to collaborate with who understand his sensibilities and will totally get to Elfman. Um, and so sometimes like they feel a little bit like you can't tell them apart, but I do, I do think that like in this instance with this director, these visuals are coming from him and, and I, yeah, I don't, and, and Hitchcock is the same way. I mean, Hitchcock, I, I know I've read that he used to, um, like storyboard and, and he created the look of the film so that like the editor almost had no choice in the matter of what they, Ooh. like the footage they wanted to use because cool. he was that clear about what he wanted this film to be. Mm-hmm. And so he's another one where I think he absolutely was, was uh, for lack of a better term, directing the look of, of that film. But yeah, I don't know if there's really too many if I see directors you could say that about. If I see Not De Niro many. and Pesci in a movie, I'm pretty sure it's Scorsese. Sure. 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 <laughs> but then again, that is actors rather than mm-hmm. like just mm-hmm. the sort of creative yeah. direction, I guess. Yeah, which they is have interesting too. part of his creative direction at this point. <laughs> with with <Yeah>. the de-aging. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's a move. We, yeah, we won't. Uh, I have I have strong opinions about the Irish. So when one of my favorite pieces of the stop animation, it wasn't even the, the sand snakes. It was when her sculptures mm. oh, come yes. to life and start moving. And I just wanted to note that when the sculptures start actually like getting up and walking, that actually was more believable to me than the de-aged Robert De Niro in The Irishman. <laughs> I, I brought it back I, around. Yeah, that was impressive. Full circle. <laughs> That's very impressive. Yes. Um, and so I, I want to make sure I'm keeping track because you're bringing up like just a really lot of a lot of good points. One thing you had mentioned was. Um, what you felt the story was really about. Mm-hmm. And and I I agree with you. I I love the relationship um between Lydia and the Maitlands. It it is a very sweet um I don't it it, it yeah, it's like the emotional heart of of this film. Mm-hmm. And you know, they make kind of light references to the fact that Maybe they've tried to have a family of their own yeah. and it hasn't happened yes. for them. And so I love the connection. And I got to say, you know, when you were talking about how, um, you know, I'll just reference them by actor name, like how Winona Ryder plays off of Michael Keaton, vice versa. I I really love Ryder in this movie. I mean, she was still really young, pretty newish actor she has some mm-hmm. amazing moments in it when she, she really does. talks she about really does. her whole life being one big, big dark room dark room. <laughs> love it yeah that really she had some pretty incredibly well-timed line deliveries in this film where it's the line itself is not really that special of a line but the way she delivers it they're yeah. Some really almost profound moments in that dark room line is one of the ones where I was like, oh, this is almost like hinting to the fact that maybe she is having some troubles and no one is listening to her and no one even her parents have no idea. They're not paying any attention to her. They're so wrapped up in their own craziness that they don't even listen to the fact that she said that they they completely breeze past that line. Mm -hmm. But it hits it hit me in a certain way. A lot of her lines were that way where. I just feel for her. She's so lonely and that is hard as a young person. And so that's 
part of why her relationship with the Maitlands is so beautiful because they're actually paying attention to her and listening and they really care about her, even though at first they're trying to eradicate her. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But they decide not to. That's one thing that I actually appreciate about the film is that um, there's not a whole bunch of to do about the fact that, I mean, they they say it, they're like, you can see us. And then they're like, you're not afraid of us. But so they get those questions out of the way, but they do it in pretty quick order. And, and it just moves to the relationship that develops between them and Lydia. And that's what I want to see. Like, sometimes I think that uh, films can kind of belabor that, that aspect where it's like, oh, we have ghosts, you know, and it, right. yeah. it's no, like, okay, really, uh, let's <laughs> fast track us to get past that. Yeah. And which I really liked and it makes complete sense for her character, you know, and she says like, I'm, I'm different. I'm weird. Like, mm-hmm. I love how, myself. Uh, I'm strange and unusual. There yeah. you go. There you go. She was so disappointed that they weren't gross. Yeah. She <laughs> I was. Like that. Yeah. yeah. That was pretty great. It, and I just, uh, you know, I can appreciate Keaton's performance for just how outrageous it is. <laughs> and and I mean, I just I, I'm usually in awe of great performances, uh, whether, you know, drama, comedy, whatever his in particular. I'm like, I don't even know how he does what he does. Like, how do you ad lib stuff? Like, how do you I even have no clue? Because it, it really is a brilliant performance. Tonally, it's completely bizarre. Mm-hmm. I can't really put a label on it or put it an analogy to it because I've never really seen anyone do that sort of character before. Exactly. Which. You know, I do think whether maybe it's going to sound again a little snarky, Uh but um, whether or not actors want to admit it, I mean, of course, they look to other performances to sometimes inform their own. And there's no shame in that. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't I don't uh, judge anybody for that. But, yeah, it's like where does he he has nothing to compare that performance against. Like, it's so, so unique. Like you said, the word iconic. And so I can appreciate that. But he also. At that point, again, a little bit younger in his career, but he was an adult. And and that's why Winona Ryder's performance, although it's certainly, you know, the opposite of outrageous, the fact that she still was so young and she had such a handle on who this character was and Mm -hmm. could really hold her own and, and has real screen presence. I mean, that's... I guess why she has continued to have a career but um yeah I find that just all the more impressive that somebody so young could could pull that off I do too I think her performance is pretty outstanding there's a lot of pathos to it mm-hmm. which in this sort of film it being a quote-unquote horror comedy type film you wouldn't expect really any pathos because you're mm-hmm. expecting to laugh and be a little scared. (laughs) But really, I found a lot of moments in this film really touching, which I would never, as a kid, I did not. But as an adult, I actually think it's a very sweet film, (laughs) which I don't know. I don't know if that's what he intended with this film, but it does. her performance really does bring a lot of heart to the film. And his brings that other dimension of sort of wacky hilarity and he gives her the space to be the heart. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, 
in thinking about kind of how I'm familiar with Burton films, I mean, first of all, the first the first film that came to mind on a couple different points, both with you mentioning kind of the sweetness of this film, but also the like nostalgia factor that you have kind of found in Burton films. I think of Edward Scissorhands because I think that's yes. another example of both both uh, points that you made. And again, you know, uh, another Winona Ryder film. Um, yes. Yeah. So, so beautiful. Yeah. She, again, does a great job. And I think, you know, her and Depp's character, it seems pretty obvious to say so, but they hold that spot of like that sweet center and then everything around them, you know, is kind of brash or self-centered or I mean I guess Diane Weist she has a sweetness to her to her as well but um mm-hmm. yeah it's kind of like there's like all this like craziness going on which I think maybe a lot of people or or darkness going on that people uh have as like a first takeaway from his films but I do think that there often is a really kind of sweet core to his stories and I don't know the guy Coraline but is another good example Coraline. Yep. Oh, yeah. I think he produced um, that. That's one of my most favorite yeah. movies ever, too. I really, I love those sort of darker world. But yeah, sweet. There's a sweet part to it, to a lot of mm-hmm. those films he's involved with. You know who I found to not be a sweet part of this movie was uh, the oh, realtor <laughs> by the name of Jane. I thought she was pretty pushy. <laughs> she was insufferable. So, yeah. What is your take on her, Connor? She is oh, awful. Sorry. She's, <laughs> awful. she's really unpleasant. And yes. she's completely missing. Well, she's not listening, first of all. She's not a listener. She just bulldozes any conversation she has in the film, which is something I don't like in people. I tend to like people who actually open their ears <laughs> and listen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a nice quality when you find people who do that. So she's just way too aggressive really insensitive coming to the house when they've said no multiple times she's just insufferable i find her i could almost in the window yeah Yeah. creepy like (laughs) it and i i have to say you know it's it's not necessarily the job of a film to explain every little thing and every little relationship i don't i don't need that and i kind of like making those connections on my own but because we're at the very top of this film in the very beginning of the story, you know, the first time I watched it, I'm like, who's this person again? Why is she being so pushy? Why does she feel like she has the right to be so pushy? Yeah. And then you only learn later on. And it's a real, and again, a, a throwaway line where she says we're family. And Can so, you believe it? Yeah. Right. And, and so, okay, now you have context for, for why uh, she was pushy and also why she seems to have any kind of, um, decision making with with what happens to the house after their passings um i think that all could have been handled without that character ever being present i think we all would have followed that I this couple so. this yeah. couple died that's a great they point. had this house the house was sold you know someone else could have brought that skeleton key it was just a really weird like everything else fits together like pretty well yeah. but that character i just always wonder like why actually a really good point i totally agree i think she's not a useless character but she's definitely not essential yeah like the other she is not essential 
She's not. She's not essential. <laughs> Let's vote her off the island. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's yeah, because I'm trying to think of other examples where I'm like, well, that character served no purpose. They didn't help to inform the other characters. They didn't progress the narrative. Like those are kind of the two things that you're always thinking about. <laughs> Plus, she's yeah. so like in our face too. Yeah, it's not just like a character that might be in the background. We're like, well, maybe whatever. It's fine. But like, it just seemed weird that. Like, it didn't really matter if she wanted to sell the house and they didn't want to because they were going to die anyways. Right. And the house was going to get sold anyways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if that's the worst thing I can say about this, it's not. But it's the worst thing I'm going to say about it right now. But that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I totally agree. I'm like sitting here just nodding my head because like that's the first time I've ever kind of considered that. That like she absolutely plays no role in like moving the for the story along. And she could literally be pulled out of that. And she played the, story... the she played the hell out of that she role. She sure did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she really did. She was going for a sort of. She was like maybe thinking of her role as like a side battle goose, but really, you didn't need to be there. We he didn't need like that. I know it's not pronounced battle goose, but it's an ongoing no. joke. All of my friends make fun of me because I pronounce it battle goose because that's how it's spelled. I, I didn't okay, know it was so Beetlejuice. Until thank I was you, an adult. thank you, thank you. I'm actually really glad that you brought this up because <laughs> that actually is the one other part of this film that's never explained. Multiple spellings. <laughs> Why so, is this his name? So many spellings of this character's name. So first of all, <laughs> when you're just going through the opening credits, it very clearly has a space between Beetle and Juice. Yeah. Yes. However, the as it's like marketed and as it is on the IMDb page I'm looking at at this very moment, it is one word. But then you have in the film the actual character whose spelling of his name is completely different. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I've heard like stories about like kind of to your point, you know, they decided to change it because it's just easier to pronounce. Um but there's like never any explanation unless I missed it. No, I think you're right. I okay. I don't think they ever address it. Um, Beetlejuice versus Betelgeuse, like which is the star? What right? exactly mm -hmm. the star? <laughs> why is he named after a star? For for one thing, I that's interesting. And then two, when you all the scenes where he's in the grave and coming out of the grave and his sort of you know, matinee performance looking sign is it's all Betelgeuse. Yes. So it's like, why is and that? Because he's so old, like his name used to be Betelgeuse and now it's Beetlejuice. Did he rename himself when was times a, uh, changed? There, <laughs> there was a, a head, a tombstone that said here lies Beetlejuice or Betelgeuse. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, here lies Beetlejuice because I thought it was supposed <laughs> to rhyme. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I would have never thought of that. Yeah, you shouldn't have. I shouldn't have. <laughs> it is, was completely nonsensical. How they like uh what's the one in Tombstone where it's like here lies so and so Yeah, because yeah, they always kind of have them rhyme. Around Halloween time, yeah. you'd always see like in people's front yards these like hokey tombstones that would just have like corny little rhymes. So I saw oh, yeah. that. And then I saw the movie and I just thought, oh, it's Beetlejuice. <laughs> Beetlejuice. 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 Yeah. Oh. 
And okay, on a similar note, you okay, Connor? Mm-hmm. You tell me if I am just like really now uh, splitting hairs. <laughs> so when he is trying to get Lydia to say his name, and he's giving her these like visual cues, confusing. Yeah, she For gets her. Beetle right away. Yes, but then However, she thinks it's breakfast orange. Yes, which, what even is that? I don't and I know. was like. Okay, this makes no sense whatsoever because, like, she turns around and sees a bug and immediately she's like, oh, beetle. I would have been like, like, uh, bug. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it could be a million bugs. I do not have, like, immediate firsthand knowledge of different bugs based on their look with (laughs) few exceptions. But you know what? I believe that she might. Maybe she does. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess she she could. She could. that, That being said, for her to not immediately be, like, orange juice, like, it... I was so it's, it's again so drink small yeah so she petty, comes up but I they could have had like OJ Simpson because he was the oh, juice oh boy okay. <laughs> that was a pretty popular nickname back then yeah and it really yet, took her a while yeah. to get there which right? is surprising because she's obviously a very intelligent person but yeah. I did think that scene was a little it just didn't quite translate for me, particularly that she got beetle so fast. And then juice to me is the easier choice. But then Thank she you. went through breakfast orange, drink, drink. <laughs> I'm like, she's just messing with him. Okay. She was just harassing him. Uh, I mean, okay. If, Maybe if she that's was. what it was, that's the one moment in the movie where I didn't feel like writer was was making that clear. And that's the brilliance of her acting. <laughs> ambiguous scene (laughs) i love it yeah that's so true that i agree that scene is kind of confusing and for a movie that most things are so obvious and literal and clandestine or that Mm -hmm. clandestine Mm -hmm. moment didn't really i don't know which maybe that's not the right word in the grand scheme of things the fact that we're like nitpicking these really really minor moments shows you overall it's a really great film so it does hold up it it really does um there's stuff where i'm like uh they wouldn't obviously have a scene where he's trying to like peek under her dress i don't think that i don't think that would fly in any Mm -hmm. content necessarily much less a family oriented film yeah right but overall it's it's still like a really fun movie to watch yeah and i um i think yeah you're you're right on all points i mean i'm trying to think of and this is gonna sound really uh oh problematic in itself okay but i'm like how (laughs) so like it's very easy to say crude like lewd you know, like, okay, how, how are you going to portray a crude character? Okay, well, he's going to be very lewd. He's going to be... Yeah. So, like, if you take that away from him... Yeah. How, like, what are you... Le- like, fart jokes. Like, what else are you well, left with? yeah, no. Yeah, and- fart jokes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, it, it, it makes sense in the context. It, it completely fits that character. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just the character that, that he's supposed to be. And I don't know if it says more about how, like, I don't think I thought about that in the same way then when I first saw right. it that I, that I do now, or if there's like a, like heightened sensitivity over seeing something like yeah. that in a film and just wondering like, Hmm, I wonder what I thought about that when I first saw it, if right. anything. Mm-hmm. So you think about those things, but you're right. Ultimately, like that was the character. That's exactly what they were trying mm-hmm. to portray. They mm-hmm. wanted him to be inappropriate towards right. yes. the character. They right. wanted him to be inappropriate towards uh writer's character. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's who Beetlejuice, if that is his actual name, was. <laughs> 
totally. <laughs> really he's not Fred. <laughs> supposed to be, I don't think he's supposed to be like, quote unquote, likable. I don't think he's supposed right. to be someone you can imagine yourself being friends with or something. Mm-hmm. He's kind of like that annoying uncle that shows up to the family gatherings who thinks he's really funny, definitely oversteps, lots of boundaries. That's sort of how I see him. I think that's a completely appropriate description of yeah. him. He's not wholesome in any not way. Not wholesome. I don't think we are ever told why he no longer works with their uh, their case officer. Who I love. I yeah, wanted to get great. to Juno. I love Juno. But um, I'm guessing it had to do with like an HR issue. In oh, office. yeah. Undoubtedly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which is saying a lot because, you know, that whole bureaucratic under not underworld afterlife world Mm -hmm. um there's there's a lot going on that's not necessarily like on the up and up but um that but i gotta say i don't well i don't know what this says about me but that's those (laughs) scenes are kind of some of my favorite scenes yeah no they're Uh, they are amazing it's because it's part of like this world that that's been created and it's it's amazing that you know you take something that could be like scary they're dead and then they're met with like a handbook on how to deal mm-hmm. with it and instructions on how to try to like get help from their caseworker. It was such like a kind of hilarious bureaucratic <laughs> way of dealing with something like you're dead and that stuff never goes away. <laughs> you're always going to have to yep. deal with like waiting some in line, just like dense manual that you can never figure out. And you would think, oh, we're dead. We don't have to deal with that stuff. Nah. Right. And not particularly helpful, like civil servants. Yeah. And yeah. 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 Exactly. It was like the, the crazy DMV, DMV line. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Jinx. Yeah. It's wild. <laughs> <laughs> that, it's so true. Those scenes are completely, those to me are some of the funniest scenes because. Yes. Yeah. They're so unexpected. And I love that that's where he went with it. Like in his head, that's what the afterlife is like. He has such, there's so many scenes in this movie where I would have just loved to have gotten into his head. Like the, all of the Calypso music I love, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. partly because I played in a steel drum band in college and we played mostly Calypso music. So it has a huge, that's cool. That's very big place in my heart. But also somehow the juxtaposition of this wacky movie with Calypso music really, really works. Yes. And I can't explain it, but that scene where they're at the table, Mm. first of all, all their performances are amazing because you see on their faces, like, what's happening? But then their bodies are so involved in the dancing. Really great performances. Catherine O'Hara was was too good at it. She looked like she was leading (laughs) them all. Yes. She was 10 out of 10 so great in that scene. That is where she shines in this movie. My... My theory on her in that moment is that, like, at first she was like, the hell is going on? But then she kind of got into it. Yeah. I, think, I think she, she really did. like began to enjoy it. Despite oh, it. I think so, too. Yeah. I think she yeah. definitely did because she really goes there more than anyone else in that scene. Otho or Otho, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. I can't mm-hmm, remember. Mm-hmm. He goes there, too, when he's sort of playing the drum and he's like yes. a little saucy mm-hmm. yeah. with yep. it, yep. a little cheeky with it. I'm like, oh, okay. Although he is saucy and cheeky in many scenes. Virtually every scene Virtually, he He's yeah. one of either saucy or cheeky. <laughs> or cheeky. <laughs> yes. Um, I think it's time, since we are speaking to a composer, that we talk about the music. And you kind of, you you led us there um, with bringing up the Calypso uh, music, which yeah. I agree. I think it it's completely unexpected, but then... Mm-hmm. 
when you're watching the movie, you're like, oh yeah, that makes complete sense. Like it completely fits in with like the atmosphere and the tone of this movie. It so, opens with it. Mm-hmm. it like the, the mm-hmm. regular like main score or theme, they kind of like slip it in right at the beginning. Yeah, right at the beginning. Yeah, they do. When they transition from outside to inside the house, mm-hmm. I think, or whenever he's listening to it on the radio, I think. Oh, he is. I wonder if that's all. Yeah, okay. I I think I kind of maybe... I don't want to say like tuned out, but like, yeah, I definitely remember hearing that come in at the very beginning. When you see the, then, like the image yes. for Beetlejuice, yeah, you hear like yeah. me want to go home. Right. And then it yeah, goes into that's the- right. Um, And I think another really strong point of the film, obviously, I, I mean, I adore Danny Elfman. I think he is absolutely amazing. I love Oinko Boinko. Um, mm-hmm. And I think this has a really iconic theme. Yes. Uh, which I think is a really I'm trying to think of how many comedy, albeit, yeah, it's a horror comedy for sure. But I'm trying to think of how many comedies I know that have like a really iconic theme to them that I can. Not many yeah. come to mind. Yeah, me neither. I'm so, racking my brains. I yeah, have come I can, up with nothing. I can see, I can see the <laughs> racking. Um, so, okay. So I, I kind of, you know, led you there and you're absolutely no obligation to agree but how how do you feel about Elfman's contribution to this film I love it I love Mm -hmm. anytime Danny Elfman and Tim Burton work together because Mm -hmm. they really get each other it's similar to John Williams and Steven Spielberg Mm -hmm. where and Bernard Herrmann and Alfred Hitchcock how they just Mm -hmm. really get each other and it's rare I think a lot of composers work with a ton of different directors but their relationship it seems to be good. I've never heard anything otherwise that they do actually like each other and get along. But they also just stylistically are soulmates, I think, because Danny Elfman's music slips so perfectly into a Tim Burton film. It really is like they were made for each other. I That's my own personal opinion. This score in particular, it's just perfect. I mean, the very low piano and the kind of – it's like just kind of – going along like almost like just rumbling along kind of like how Beetlejuice is it, there's really no pause in the main theme it just kind of it's almost like a run-on sentence that piano motif and it's great it's a little bit dark but it's a little bit funny and it's a little bit quirky and he always yeah. Danny Elfman seems to really like to use very low instruments with very high instruments like tuba with piccolo or you know very low piano with very high celesta bell sound over top of it which is weird not many people do that but when he does it it really works and i don't know why (laughs) i i can't explain why because you're taught not to do that in orchestration class but he's like "Mm, i'm gonna do it anyway and it ends up being totally memorable and making the score i mean this is a completely memorable score for people it's like the most fun yet menacing score mm-hmm. you could imagine. That's a great way of putting it. And I feel like there yeah. are moments where where Tim Burton is like, I'm gonna make this scene pretty weird. And Elfman's like, I got you. <laughs> He's like, Don't worry. I'm there. I'm there already. Yeah. Let me just send you a little something I've been working on. Yeah. And I seriously, love it. Connor, I could I could listen to you talk about this all day because you come from a perspective that is completely um, foreign to me, you know, like for you to be able to even like, I just hear like, oh, that's a really cool score. And yeah. to be able to hear it from the perspective of somebody who understands what it takes to make a score 
and like how you are maybe traditionally told to put different instruments or pieces of music together. Like mm-hmm. I find that just so fascinating. And yeah, I mean, from from my kind of layman's uh, point of view, I, I love it. I think it works perfectly. And I agree with you. Like I, I think that that is one of um, – one, one of the – it's a weird way to put it, but like most treasured relationships that I have observed in cinema because you're right, Elfman and Burton, they work together so incredibly well. They're completely in sync with each other. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of respect on both ends, you know? And I mm-hmm. think that, that like you – the same could be said for like Spielberg and Williams. And um, I think there's a lot of trust between – those different creatives and and yeah. usually something really beautiful comes out of that and so totally. I, yeah I just I, I adore them separately and I adore them together and would you, if you combine them into one person would they be <laughs> Tim Elfman or Danny Burton <laughs> oh interesting oh, oh I like wow. Danny Burton Danny I think Burton? that sounds good okay I don't do know think I think that's a great question I think yeah I think I think Danny would have to be the first, I think it'd have to be Danny Burton. I think I like that Danny Burton. Danny, a Danny Burton film. Yeah, Beetlejuice. <laughs> Beetlejuice. Betelgeuse. Like take on Happy Madison. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I that uh, warms my heart that you like it because, like, I I look at you like you are an expert in this this sphere of cinema, and so. For you to say that you love this collaboration and you love this composer, like, makes me feel like, okay, awesome. I, uh, and again, to compare it to the movie we watched <laughs> yeah. for our last episode, the openings could not have been more different musically because mm-hmm. I think we just got like maybe, um, this tone intended to increase anxiety at the beginning of The Shining versus yeah. this one just yes. kind of lets you know right off the bat, hey, it's going to be kind of fun. You're in for it's a be yes. wacky yeah. ride. <laughs> it's so true. And both kind of have that sprawling intro. The Shining is yes. also yes. one of my other favorite movies. So, And I love the score in The Shining too. But they both do completely different things. And actually, Kubrick is another filmmaker I can think of where I can yeah. know it's his film Great point. in two shots. I'm like, oh, Kubrick. And it's something about there's the stylistic nature that it really tunes me in. But that opening, they are a similar idea in terms of here's the town and here's where the movie's going to be. But you're right. Beetlejuice is definitely gives you the go ahead to think it's going to be fun. Whereas The Shining is like, you're about to be very scared. And this is unsettling. <laughs> and it's Desire, which is like old Latin yeah. scary chant. Yeah. <laughs> and there's so no just don't be fooled. Yeah. No if you're feeling bad don't be now. Fooled. If you think you feel bad now, you're going to feel way worse. You're going to feel a lot worse. Yeah. This is the feel bad movie of a long time. Well, it tr- okay, I yes, this is a this is the Beetlejuice episode, but actually what you just said, like that is actually what Stephen King said. Yeah. And I know there's a whole, you know, there's a whole thing between Stephen King and Kubrick. Um, but that's what Stephen King said about Kubrick's take yeah. of The Shining that he made oh. a film to make people feel bad. And the only reason I bring it up is because like the the contrast is just so striking between yes. the two. So to have to be yeah. kind of like talking about them back to back like this. It's like, wow, they they're so different in so many ways. And I'm they so really are happy that this movie ended with like someone just getting good grades and dancing in the air. <laughs> I know. The ending is really a precious thing. It's like 
it's so great because the tone of the rest of the film is kind of, I don't know, it's more surfacey level. But then mm-hmm. that is like sort of brings you down and yeah, it's a feel good movie at the end of it. The football team is there dancing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> poor guy. It, poor it's things. It's an interesting ending. <laughs> I know. I did feel bad for them, especially because they had no clue that They're they were dead a good for time. a long time. It's fine. Um, yeah. It, at, at the end of the day, it's fine because I, I am a firm believer that, like, you can find your family. Like, your family's not, ju- like, great if you have close bonds with, like, the people with whom you, like, actually share DNA. But you can also mm-hmm. find family. Totally. And, and clearly, Lydia does not connect in the same way with her dad and stepmom that she does with the Maitlands. And so it it's interesting to me that at the end of the film, it's her with them, rather her with her own parents. And yes. they're like upstairs doing their own thing. Totally. But everybody does seem happy and everybody does seem content. Yes. And so it is the right choice for an ending, I think, for this film. And this, and I think so the too. Conclusion of the story. It's very so, balanced, very mm-hmm. balanced type of ending, which is cool because the whole movie is a little unhinged because mm-hmm. of Beetlejuice. He's unhinged. Yep. yep. I think that <laughs> as we're, this has just been a fantastic conversation. I think as we kind of come to wrapping things up, I'm really curious. This is kind of one of those like big questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing that I always was curious about, because I don't think it's really explained but juno makes a point of like berating the maitlands by saying like you cannot let the living know that there actually is an afterlife yeah oh i didn't she was very upset about that she was very upset about that and wow you know because there's the evidence of them with the sheets and um and so it's never really explained why why that would be so bad and so detrimental Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious uh, what, like, your take is on that. And if you feel comfortable doing so, have do you feel like you've ever, you know, like, not had, like, a Maitland situation, but, like, do you feel like you've ever been in the presence of something that you couldn't explain? Have you ever been in wow. an episode of Ghost Adventures? <laughs> I love that show. I think Zach Bagans is hilarious. Ah, you know him! I do. <laughs> I actually oh. love that show. Oh, I really, Connor, we love I do. You. <laughs> I love you guys too. I do. I love that show. Um, let's see. Maybe I'll answer it in reverse. Okay. Yes, I have seen things my my whole life. Actually, I've tried to not see them, which I've heard is common for people. If you are quote unquote sensitive, mm-hmm. you can kind of like not be. But I found in my case. It's going to happen regardless. Um, I think the first time I saw something that I couldn't explain was I was really young. Um, and I saw, I mean, it's going to sound weird, but I guess this is a Tim Burton movie, so I can sound weird. Sure. Uh, Definitely. I saw a headless ghost cat when I was a kid. That's amazing. At, yeah. At a, the Biltmore Estate, which is wow. a like really old hotel place. Well, it's not a hotel actually. It was someone's private home and now you can tour it. Um in North Carolina, Western North Carolina. Uh so I distinctly remember that and nobody believed me, but then 
actually my parents gave me a book years later called Haunted North Carolina. And <gasps> darn if that little cat wasn't in there. So I had the oh, wow. justification years later where I was like, okay. But by then other things had happened. So um, yes, I I guess I could be called sensitive in that way. Um, I used to be like really embarrassed about it and shy about it. But now I'm like, well, it happens, whatever. <laughs> some people see stuff, some people don't. In the end, whatever, like, you know, you can't control it. So it doesn't, I don't know. It's it, just part it's just of weird. your life experience. Yeah. And it sort of makes me maybe more open-minded about things in some yeah. ways. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's definitely been problematic at times, like, because it can be scary to, mm. and surprising and unexpected. But in a way, I guess it's kind of neat too? I don't know. I mean, a lot of people, someone, most people can't probably. As someone who's actually reading Dr. Sleep, the sequel to The Shining, this is all sounding very familiar Ooh. to what Dan Torrance is going through. Really? Because he, yeah, he's lived his whole life being able to see stuff. This is again, a Beetlejuice podcast. But, <laughs> but no, what you're, what you're saying just uh, reminded me of that character in that, that world. Yeah, I'll have to read it because it's, I don't know. It's like, I've heard from maybe a few other people who have similar experiences that they don't necessarily want it. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't want to have the shining, but mm-hmm. you can't really, some people are able to not, like some people have no experiences, even though they might have the quote unquote gene or whatever, or maybe it's mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. a personality type. I have no idea what makes it, because there are people who will flat out tell you you're imagining it or, mm-hmm. you know, trick of the light. There's a million different ways to debunk it. But then there's people who just, you know, on principle believe you. And that's an interesting thing to think about is what makes some people able to accept that that sort of thing can happen, like that things we can't explain could exist. And what mm-hmm. makes people say no, absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, that doesn't exist. It's interesting. It's it's And that is a whole like, like we could have a whole other podcast about that because I think that's absolutely fascinating. It's and weird I, because I naturally am very skeptical of any such stories, but then on the same, on, on the other hand, I also generally like believe when mm-hmm, people say mm-hmm. that they have experienced something because mm-hmm. we have friends who have talked yeah. about experiences yep. that they've had, and I generally like believe them. Yeah, and and to your like point slash question, Connor, I think that uh, sometimes the people who are so resolute that no, that's just not possible. I think that comes from a place of fear. I think yeah. it's it could be really scary to acknowledge mm-hmm. that there are things that we can't understand. And is that why Juno was upset about this? About people <laughs> understanding way that to an afterlife? Bring, way to bring it back, way to bring it back. <laughs> really um, great, really great full circle there. For the preservation Truly. of humanity. Maybe that's what it is. Or maybe it's so you don't live your life like in a certain way maybe it's like giving you the opportunity you don't know maybe it's great to not know what happens for some people like maybe that's That's... why she does she wants to give them the option or maybe she wants to give them the chance to sort of live life to the absolute fullest without knowing what's going to happen next that that's as good of an explanation as i could ever come up with and (laughs) just out of curiosity again this is a beetlejuice podcast um or episode but connor have you watched (laughs) the good place yeah i used to work on it actually (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) yeah random huh that's amazing uh okay we're gonna have to like off 
off uh, this recording. Talk about that too. Um, yeah. But so, okay. So then hopefully you know where I'm going with this because that reminds me of, you know, that those, sorry, spoilers, people, if you haven't seen the last season of, you, you've seen, <laughs> are you current? Have you seen the whole thing? I have. Our? Yes. Okay, great. Okay. So, uh, you know, in the last, couple episodes when they finally do make it to the legitimate good place right they find that people are kind of uh like hmm, loopy's not the right word but like you know the lisa kudrow character says that like her brain's turning to mush and it's because they're just here forever with everything great anything they could possibly ever want or need or experience with no end in sight Mm -hmm. and so there's kind of um at least one aspect of that, one result is that there's kind of a lack of appreciation and a lack of kind of recognizing how important the moment can be. And yeah. so that's why they decide to have this like door that would, you know, at that person's choosing and they don't ever have to go through it if they don't want to, but they can go through the store and nobody really knows what's on the other side of it. But mm-hmm. the expectation is that potentially they're just kind of like, yeah. This is kind of a uh, sounds like more of a violent word than I want to use, but they're kind of vaporized and just return to the universe. Yeah, and I think that maybe that's a that's kind of a, a parallel idea in Beetlejuice. If that is where Juno was going, where it's like if you affirm for people that there actually is an afterlife that will like irrevocably change the way they live their physical lives. I think so. So maybe it's, you know, if you don't know, you make maybe more deliberate choices, especially if like, if you're like, oh, so I'm just going to be a ghost. I'm going to get to live in this house that I lived in and <laughs> life just kind of keeps going <laughs> in, a, in yeah. a weird way. Um, you know, yeah, maybe you're not going to appreciate life as much. Who who knows? But like, I think that that's a really, a really great perspective on like why she was so concerned about that. I do I think. think- just told her. Like, uh, <laughs> it's an HR question. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, of course, it's all just speculation, but I like to believe that people like she was in the position to give people the choice to not know something that could really change their perspective. And I think that's maybe why she's in the movie. Maybe that's mm-hmm. really her Thing. And if if that's the case, I mean, this is getting maybe more in depth than Beetlejuice ever intended to be. That's kind of a really beautiful, kind of great thing. It's one of the most ambiguous and one of the most asked questions of life is what happens after. And yeah, it's kind of fun to speculate and all that. But at the end if of the day, wrong, you're going to end up like Beetlejuice. <laughs> yeah, wow. great. Well, that's we a great have his, takeaway. He has quite the look. <laughs> Don't end yeah. up like Beetlejuice. Just yeah, that's that's just a good a good motto for anything. Um, I that- agree. <laughs> I really agree. I definitely don't want to look like him. That's for sure. I think if I really wanted to, I could make my hair look like his right now because of the pandemic. He he said as much last night. We're yeah. Right. yeah. Wow. We'll, I'm gonna we'll, work on that. Uh, we'll we'll. Yeah, can we post it on that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Connor, this has been just such a joy. This, this has been wonderful to get to talk to you about this film. You Yeah, it's been wonderful. Oh, for me too. It 
you've offered like just so many again like I say this every time like our guests they just have amazing insights on these films and it was particularly uh awesome to get to hear your thoughts on the musical component of this film we always really love having people who like are experts in in a certain field and getting their take on something oh well it was my absolute pleasure and as I usually do as well open invitation Anytime you want to come back, we will, with open arms from a socially distanced, safe space, <laughs> welcome you back. From across the country. <laughs> Thank you so much. That means a lot. And I have had so much fun. It was really fun to talk about this movie because I love it and I love Tim Burton. And it was just really fun to hear your guys' takes on everything. Oh, well, thank you. Sometimes they're not as insightful as our guests, <laughs> That's great. (laughs) (laughs) But okay, so so yes, um, you know, it's uh, we we are we are talking technology. We're talking cross country to you right now, Um, Mm -hmm. and I know that uh, it's been an interesting several months or to 2020. It's been a year. It's been a year. Yes, indeed. Um, And so I know that that usually. It has an impact, especially with creatives and, and what they're able to kind of do under these like very challenging circumstances. Mm-hmm. That being said, I wanted to just see if if you were able to kind of put out that creativity somewhere and, and ask what you've been up to lately. Yeah, um, I've still been writing a lot. Um, a bunch of films I worked on, some by myself, some with Alexa, my co-composer who actually worked on your film with me. Um, we have a few films going to festivals. Um, if anyone wants to watch Alone Together on YouTube, it could yes. be really cool. It's not long, and it's a very female – it was a mostly female crew, and mm-hmm. it's a female-driven story. So we're, we just worked really hard on it, and that is something you can watch on YouTube through LA Shorts Fest. Um and Alexa and I have a bunch of stuff currently in the works that will be coming out at some point. And we are actually going <laughs> to awesome. be releasing an album sometime soon for <gasps> one of our other films, uh, Limerence. Wow. So that is a little insider info. We're going to be posting about it tomorrow. So I didn't really jump the shark too bad. What was the name again? It's called Limerence. Got it. And mm-hmm. I, so we had Alexa on the show um, a couple months ago for The Princess Bride. I listened. And that was so fun. It, it it was a lot of fun. And I'm going to say the same thing to you that I said to her, which is the common denominator for these films that are doing uh, well through the festival circuit is the fact that you two scored them. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, I, I have Aww. to say you – you both, you are so amazingly talented. I feel like just the luckiest girl in the world that I somehow came in contact with you for you to be the two that scored. She had it coming. It It is just not, not to like, I'm really not trying to give a shout out to our own stuff, but like you deserve, <laughs> you deserve the shout out because it is just, I love, I love, I love the music in this short. And yeah, I just, it's perfect am, in the short. It's, it is it's so, so perfect. And I'm just so grateful to you two for elevating the the story with with your contribution. So, um, and I I know that 
every other filmmaker who has had you work on their films feels the same way. And seriously, like, I think that the fact that these films are getting into any festivals, that's on you too. You too, oh. for sure. So, well, yeah. thank you so much for your kind words, but they are all big team efforts for sure. We wouldn't have uh, anything sure. to write to if we didn't have <laughs> great films, you know? Like, we really can, if we really connect with a film, it's easy for us to write good music mm. because the film brings it out of us. So thank you for making a film that really inspired us to do something unique because we haven't really written in that style before. And it was really great fun for us. And we learned a lot, which can never complain for learning. You're like, we learned that Anna does not know how to talk music to save her life. So. <laughs> you did great, actually. It's actually better for us if you don't know how to talk about music. You just talk about You've said stuff, that, and but... we like that. <laughs> okay. We do. No, well, you did great. We had an amazing time working on oh, She Had It Coming. Thank you. Thank you. And yes, for all of our listeners out there, um, definitely – be sure if you can, by any means that you can, check out Alone Together, um, correct? Yeah, That's Alone the, Together. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. It. And um, it, I was very lucky to get a glimpse into that story when it was still in script stage. And it is a beautiful, beautiful story. And go Katie for all the success that it's had. Um, totally. Connor, thank you again for, for being on the show. Thank you so much. This was just like I said at the beginning, a treat and a perfect little exciting moment to get ex excited again for Halloween. So that was, again, a really fantastic conversation with composer Connor Cook. Connor, thank you so much. Okay. Call to action. Oh, are we already at a call to action? We are at already at the call to action. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. then I'm going to say if, if you were in Beetlejuice's line of work. And I think he did market himself as a bio exorcist. That's exactly how he marketed himself. So if you were a bio exorcist, how would you get a family out of the house? I think that's a great call to action. I mean, how would you do it? How Are you how? like literally asking me? Right I am. Now, I don't need, oh, uh, <laughs> uh, Okay, so bio exorcist. So I'm, but I'm also a ghost. Like, no. I'm, I'm both? Well, if you're not a ghost, then you're probably just, like, a crazy person. Yeah, I think maybe that's called, like, just murderer, maybe, <laughs> um, <laughs> if you're not a ghost. If you launched a couple of people <laughs> through the roof to, I assume, their death. I think, so, like, I think what people don't realize is, like, you don't need to do, like, jump scares and things like that. Like, I think the most effective things to do to, like, get people out of house is, like, you play like a awful song over and over and over again. Like it's that kind of stuff that like wear people down. I would, uh, or you keep it too hot or you like, like you do those things that like humans just cannot put up with for extended amounts of time. I got two words, drum lessons. There you go. Yeah. Buy a drum it's kit. like that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, or, I mean, this has been really effective cause this has actually been happening to us a little bit lately. Like play, um, a smoke alarm over and over and over and over again <laughs> you know that's yeah. really i can speak from personal experience very effective someone get a goddamn nine volt battery and just set <laughs> that thing up right um okay so like i'm i'm uh, kind of wimping out a little bit because like i don't so last week yeah we had a movie that has like a ghost a very strong ghost story component to oh, yeah. it 
and this week is the same and now personally like I always am fascinated that's why like we were asking Connor like have you ever seen anything that you can't explain and and so that's always something I'm like ooh, do tell so I'll just double down on that okay and be like if you didn't tell us last time and you still have a story we want to know essentially if you've been the victim of a, a bio exorcist exorcist yeah bio terrorist please <laughs> leave that out <laughs> We're more interested in the bio-exorcist than bio-terrorist. Please don't send us any envelopes. Good catch. Good catch. No worries. Um, and you can get in touch with us through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. It's the same handle for all three, which is at 80s Montage Pod, and 80s is 80S. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's coming up next? We're coming to the last of our unofficial Halloween trilogy. <laughs> Okay. Um, and not a ghost story. So oh. we're ending on a little bit of a different note. Okay. I don't have like, okay, I'm trying to think of, oh, a saxophonist. Is that a oh, good clue? It, it's a great clue because we must be talking about the Lost Boys. Yeah. We got to get a good vampire story in too. Yeah, right? Yeah. So really excited. We'll have, again, a wonderful guest to talk about it. And uh, that's about it. All right, I still believe. I still believe. Talk to you later. Goodbye. Goodbye.